Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg Eighteen holes at Myers Creek, the back nine Considered the most magnificent and challenging venue in all of golf, the Myers Creek Golf Club remains the sport's most cherished and preeminent 18 holes ever constructed. Its flawless and harmonious layout is an architectural wonder and has served as a century-old arena of sod, water, and sand for golf's most exhilarating and legendary moments. Like in 1987, when esteemed golfer and celebrity spokesperson for Little Lily Snack Cakes, Jensen Hughes, lost his ball on the 8th during an international match play event and was caught trying to replace it with a hard-boiled egg. Or the celebrated Mother's Day victory from senior champion Ronald Belly, who, after walking off the 18th on his way to sign his scorecard, hugged and thanked his recently widowed mother before she smacked him in the back of the head for missing the birdie putt on 13. Containing the most iconic and stunning holes in golf, like the front, the Myers Creek Back Nine offers a significant and unforgettable glimpse into the club's storied past. Hole number 10, Poplar Waxwing. The Back Nine at Myers Creek begins with a stunning and fairly easy dogleg left par four. At 450 yards, the beauty of Poplar Waxwing, like its name suggests, is accentuated by massive tulip trees and a community of American songbirds with an apparent fondness for country music, but not western. That would be silly. The serenity of this easy birdie hole is a favorite for golfers looking to grab a quick bite to eat after the turn without disrupting play. Like Crab Hill's popular crab cakes or the famous gumbo bowls at Sagegrass Dunes, Myers Creek's signature staple is an open-faced sandwich the club playfully and affectionately calls the bird's nest. It consists of country ham and cheese on Virginia toast, which is double the thickness of Texas toast, a scoop of black-eyed peas, half a pound of barbecue, freshly picked greens, a ladle of Brunswick stew, two fried chicken breasts, a slop of raw oysters, imitation crab, always imitation, ground peanuts with an apple butter spread, and is typically enjoyed with a warm glass of whole milk. In a 2009 issue, Sports Cuisine magazine called it a true tour of Virginia, with several stops at a number of the state's historical outhouses. In all of Myers Creek history, nobody past or present has been more a fan of the bird's nest sandwich than actor and singer Ricardo Valdez. Regarded as one of Mexico's most important cultural icons of the past 100 years, Valdez took up golf during the dark, cocaine-fueled downswing of his career. Wealthy beyond imagination, Valdez, a man of advancing years, developed a god complex and ignored the laws of the human body. He threw caution to the wind and filled his life with a number of harmful habits, which resulted in a rapid deterioration of his health. He smoked several packs of cigarettes a day, abused countless drugs, and overindulged on a regular basis. Not to mention he enrolled in a number of self-paced correspondence courses. It wasn't all uncommon for the Spanish megastar to consume several bird's nest sandwiches during a single round of golf, 
or have a crate of them delivered to him overseas. Once while at his Los Angeles home, Valdez was seeking a late night snack and reportedly boarded his private plane and flew to Myers Creek, where Chef was woken up to prepare the music idol his favorite sandwich. In 1976, during a round at the prestigious golf club, Valdez ate three bird's nest sandwiches on the front nine, one at the turn and another at the tee of Poplar Waxwing, before grabbing his chest and dropping to the ground. His manager jumped on the unconscious singer and started performing CPR, while the rest of Valdez's entourage dumped the vast amount of cocaine from their golf bags. To speed up the process, someone would drop a baggie onto the ground, while someone else would pitch it into the woods with an 8-iron. Despite their quick thinking, they had trouble clearing the trees, so they switched to a wedge. Valdez's loyal manager struggled to revive his friend and cash cow, as the members of his selfless posse began to panic when their shots started coming up short. They chaotically yelled at the one taking swings, each of them frantically shouting different instructions at the same time like, square your shoulders and keep your head down, or no, plant your front foot and follow all the way through. Suddenly, Ricardo Valdez regained consciousness. He sprang to his feet, thumped his chest twice with his fist and told his dumbstruck caddy to throw him his driver and another bird's nest. Hole number 11, Red-Bellied Chickadee. The backstory of this celebrated and impressive 130-yard par 3 is a long and fierce one. It's a hole that has been reshaped and rescaled over the course of some 50 years, much like the hairlines of the club's board members. The original layout of Red Belly Chickadee began as a relatively straightforward, trouble-free hole and was a favorite of course architect Pat Lundy. When first constructed in 1921, this magnificent par 3 was without a single drop of water and had, for its time, a dynamically sculpted yet manageable green with sand to the left and plenty of room for players to miss right, a pedestrian design when measured against its present-day splendor. In 1923, Eleanor Lundy, wife of the renowned architect, approached her husband in her usual manner, sporting a pair of boxing gloves, and presented to him a profound reimagining of red-bellied chickadee. A skilled designer in her own right, with ideas that most scholars have said outshined her husband's work in every respect, Eleanor proposed the first ever island green, that is, a green surrounded completely by water. It was a pioneering marvel, the likes of which golf course architecture would not see again until 1971, with the controversial brick chips trap and volcano-shaped green. As one would expect, Eleanor was met with her husband's typical disapproval and discouragement, and even though the famed planner secretly revered his wife's plan, calling it genius, both in his diary and while mumbling in his sleep, he instead asked her to explain the lipstick on the collar of her blouse he found whilst doing the laundry. She informed him that the stain was in fact motor oil from the car he couldn't fix, and right then and there vowed to make her island green a reality. Divorce ensued as well as a lengthy legal battle after Pat Lundy renovated the 11th at Myers Creek into his vision of an island green. In court, Eleanor claimed ownership of the idea, while her ex-husband proved his innocence by stating the obvious differences in their designs. The original Myers Creek Island Green, built by Pat Lundy, was a foot in diameter and was particularly difficult for foursomes. Eleanor Lundy's green was 90 feet long and contained a beautiful stone and earth land bridge lined with vibrant flowers that gave players access to the green. Pat's green had no bridge and golfers were forced to swim. After countless complaints of nibbling fish and water being tracked into the clubhouse, Myers Creek exercised their contractual right and sought course consultation and renovation from a third party, single white female Eleanor Lundy. Actually, by this point in time, it was Turnblad. 
Two years later, the 11th at Myers Creek was transformed into its modern-day incarnation, making it one of golf's most iconic greens. Hole number 12, Tough Bluebird. With the intimidating 11th behind players, Tough Bluebird is a welcome short par four with a wide and unbelievably forgiving fairway. As the events at Myers Creek have evolved over the years, so have the broadcasting measures taken to telecast them. In 1983, during a televised charity event, actor Peter Pratt, the man behind the beloved children's television personality Giggles the Clown, left America speechless with his colorful on-air remarks, which, by the 12th hole, had culminated into a chorus of suggestive language and four-letter words. Additionally, unaware of the newly adopted Zoom mics being used to cover the event, while on course, Pratt made numerous references to his involvement in illegal gambling, which included back alley turtle races and betting on restaurant wait times, as well as the tournament itself, which came to light when the Saturday morning star said to his caddy with a guttural laugh, watch me miss this shot and make a grand. The hazardous materials and third world working conditions involved in the manufacturing of Giggles the Clown merchandise and his hand in the unsolved assault on Flowers the Clown, a rival network clown that was whomped to within an inch of his life with rubber bladders by several masked assailants in a tiny car. Pratt was even filmed and recorded on his mobile phone, waiting to take his approach shot, placing an order for an escort and a large cheese with anchovies. It should also be noted that this was the first time in live broadcasting history that a public figure admitted to liking anchovies. After walking off the green, Pratt was handcuffed and arrested and allowed to make a single phone call, at which point he asked the detectives for the station's address so he could call the escort service and edit his delivery. Hole number 13, Snowy Nuthatch. Not only the shortest par five on the course, but one of the shortest on tour, Snowy Nuthatch is a perfect eagle opportunity for golfers before they tackle the challenging perch and its daunting thousand-yard climb up the mountain. At a mere 470 yards, with a severe dogleg left and a clearable tree line, allowing golfers to either cut the corner and go for the green, or concede the hole to their friends and pay up by sucking the dirt off of a worm, Snowy Nuthatch was the site of a golfing rarity, the inconceivable condor or triple eagle. Only two other times in the history of golf has someone made an ace on a par five. The first took place in 1921 at the Shoreline Golf Club in Santa Barbara by silent film actor Sidney Ford. The popular actor waited for the perfect moment to share his achievement, which arose during his annual estate bash, seconds after his guest decided to relocate to a rival co-star's posh shindig down the street. The second happened in 1946 at the Aberdeen Golf Links by a senior member of British Parliament while in the company of his mistress. Unfortunately, when asked by the press about his miraculous shot, the prominent Viscount indicated that a mistake had been made since he didn't play golf that day and instead took his wife on a romantic drive through the countryside. The Myers Creek Condor occurred in 1993 during a foolish round among college buddies in the midst of Hurricane Emily and was achieved in gale force winds with a sluggish five iron. Golfer Aaron Quinn pulled off the impossible when his drunken friends bet him $50 he couldn't land his drive in the fairway while blindfolded. Quinn was up to the task. And even after a number of beers himself, 14 and a half to be exact, as well as a quart of paint thinner, the determined amateur still had the state of mind to choose a club he knew he could hit straight, but sadly was lacking enough sense to line up his shot correctly. 
Instead, the ripped golfer aimed his shot roughly 40 degrees off his intended target and inadvertently cut the corner and took on the flagstick. Thanks to the otherwise crippling winds, Quinn's ball carried the gap and soared out of sight. When the foursome approached the green, they looked up and down for their friend's drive until someone jokingly checked the cup. To their astonishment, there was Quinn's ball with his custom middle finger marking staring back at them. Quinn had executed the rarest event in golf and was not only too drunk to remember it the next day, but also had to cough up 50 bucks. Hole number 14, Hooded Vulture. This grueling uphill par four is the first in a historical and emblematic three-hole series known throughout the world and quite possibly beyond, say past the Milky Way in a galaxy with a cookie center, as the perch. Considered hallowed ground for golfers and sports enthusiasts alike, there is no greater symbol of golf prestige than the perch's two-hole push up the imposing Myers Mountain and its subsequent 16th par three summit. With a tee to green elevation change of 200 feet stretching up the hill, the side of this taxing hole has a haunting and spooky past. In 1878, long before Hooded Vulture and the development of the Myers Creek Golf Club, even before the area's flourishing bird sanctuary, legend has it a distraught and lovesick school teacher threw herself off the mountain. Wouldn't it be funny if she was a school sick love teacher? As legend grew, so did the rumored sightings of her ghost. Over the years, witnesses have reported seeing a striking young female in period clothing emanating a soft glow while walking the nearby grounds. Some have reported seeing her wiping down a missing chalkboard or doing cartwheels amidst the trees during the opening weeks of summer vacation. In 1932, while enjoying a game of Twilight Golf, ill-famed and faded Chicago gangster Jimmy Marbles, aka Dear Aggie, a joke literally ahead of its time, claimed he not only observed the star-crossed spirit, but said he engaged with her in a delightful two-hour conversation. Jimmy Marbles was called Marbles because of his gravelly speech impediment, which he alleged the charismatic specter corrected after a series of weekly tutoring sessions held around nightfall or the witching hour or whatever was good for her. The seemingly touched yet now eloquently spoken racketeer quickly became known around the city's south side by a number of names. There was Jimmy, no longer Marbles Marbles, Jimmy the Ghost Whisperer, Teacher's Pet, Jimmy Bullets Don't Pass Through Me Marbles, Fruitcake Jimmy, this was a name that was mistakenly in reference to another Chicago area Jimmy, who at the time was running around town swiping baked goods from store windows and leaving a calling card in the form of scattered crumbs, Ectoplasm Jimmy, Jimmy Yes But What About Your Short Game, and most notably, The Merchant of Intoxicating Spirits. Hole number 15, Black-Shouldered Hawk. The perch continues majestically at Myers Mountain with a jaw-dropping and especially strenuous par five known as Black-Shouldered Hawk. Ascending a seemingly unending 560 yards through an enclosure of lofty sawtooth spruce trees with an unforgiving multi-tiered back-to-front rolling green, this punishing hole demands both physical and mental strength if a golfer wishes to stay competitive or simply make it back to their car on time where they promise to meet their lover after she finishes refilling the hot sauces in the dining room. And as if this wasn't exacting enough, Black-Shouldered Hawk is home to a colossal red spruce of dubious fame and celebration. Given the name Pike's Tree in 1962 by eminent sports writer Atticus Hale, 
After the illustrious film director Samuel Pike, this maddening Picea Rubens was seated on the edge of the left side of the 15th fairway and has been growing infamously at a 20 degree angle for nearly a century, making it an absolute headache for any right-hander with a go-to left-to-right shaped shot. And over the years, nobody has been more outspoken of their disdain for this evergreen hallmark than the tree's namesake, the late, mostly great cinematic maverick Samuel Pike. Known by the public for his gritty and violent noir and war pictures, as well as marrying a baker's dozen of delectable A-list sweethearts over the span of his lifetime, Pike found golfing notoriety after gradually being driven mad by this mammoth needling nemesis. It didn't matter where the award-winning filmmaker's drive landed, his second shot always found its way into the branches of what ribbing club members occasionally referred to as the sap trap. In April of 1964, in a momentary lapse in self-control, Pike famously climbed the contemptible spruce after it swallowed his ball. Pike then proceeded to not only play the ball from a 30-foot high branch, which he miraculously landed feet from the front edge of the green, but went on to play every devoured golf ball of his from the past 20 years. It took the Red Passage director two weeks to complete the 15th, as he insisted on consultation from his former caddies by way of back-and-forth correspondences. One such letter follows. Dear Cosmo, I hope you and Mrs. I Told You So are once again playing nicely. I typically side unequivocally with you, old friend, but I must admit your wife was wise to advise against that little lollipop shrub venture of yours. I heard it was quite the blunder. Though I love the thought of a candy-yielding hedge, I imagine convectionary cultivation to be more of a sour enterprise. In your honor, I've penned a character with similar aspirations. I'm calling it Out on a Limb with No Lolly. At any rate, I've gotten myself into a bit of a pickle here and could use that famous savvy of yours, a term I use loosely given your latest business endeavors. Remember that second shot on the 15th at Myers Creek I lost to that pine coffin? You know, the tall one? I realize that's a broad statement, as there have been many. These days, I've all but scratched out the existence of this unnerving hole altogether, and will in all likelihood excuse myself entirely from this suspect leisurely pastime. I was hitting a royal zipline ball number two, my first and last time using that particular make. Well, I recently took my third from a pine cone and have landed 75 yards out in the right rough. At the time of riding you, the wind is calm and we're looking at a back left pen just off the apron. Though I don't know if that will remain the case for much longer as it's getting dark and the superintendent is bringing out the hole cutter. Please send counsel immediately by way of airmail. Cordially, Sammy. P.S. Expect separate correspondence chains in reference to other rounds. Hole number 16, Harrier Eagle. The magical Myers Creek perch concludes with one of the most famous and awe-inspiring holes in all of golf. Named one of the seven wonders of the sporting world by noted columnist Dick Kimball, Harrier Eagle is a 100-yard par 3 that offers a breathtaking vista of Virginia's arresting scenic beauty. Not to mention in the winter a glimpse through the bedroom window of Myers Creek resident and supermodel centerfold Eve Lombardo, a sight most say is just as immobilizing. Poet Ernest Young once described the view in fall as a burning rich autumnscape of Mother Earth's supple and weakening brilliance. Additionally, in 1958, an oil painting of the iconic hole by renowned impressionist Easton Knoll was introduced to the Virginia governor's mansion by Governor Herbert Hazel III at the request of his wife as part of their trade-off for taking down the statement's beloved singing moose head, 
that was accented with bras hanging from its antlers. The famed 16th at Myers Creek was even featured on a U.S. postage stamp, as well as a Virginia State commemorative coin. Enraptured by its majesty, first-timers are often unaware of Harrier Eagle's difficulty, to say nothing of its formidable complexity. Although it's one of the shortest par threes on tour, its high swirling winds and near blind target make it one of golf's most challenging endeavors. Not unlike finding a decent hotel room during championship weekend, or at the absolute least one with a self-serving waffle iron and easy access to the freeway. Its green sits roughly 50 feet below the tee and is surrounded by fully grown pine trees with the serene, sometimes swift Myers Creek running along its front and right sides before flowing toward the old Applebaum water wheel. Expanding on the grandeur and tranquility of Harrier Eagle, from time to time, golfers are treated to the heavenly call of a rare maroon dipped titmouse or the cackle of a plastered hillbilly floating down the creek in an inner tube. In 1963, President John F. Kennedy was famously photographed sitting on the Carmine bench of the 16th tee with former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, whispering an amusing anecdote in the president's ear. Despite the fact that the subject of the witty conservative's pun remains a mystery, it is Jack's gaping laughter that makes the photograph such a heartwarming and humorous moment captured in time. Although some would argue a more priceless photo of the 35th president, is one that was snapped while the then Massachusetts Senator was playing in a Cape Cod charity polo match and was mistakenly supplied with a Shetland pony. Hole number 17, Yellow-Throated Kingfisher. This picturesque par four is a slight dogleg right with Myers Creek running along its tee boxes before cutting across the fairway. It's a charming and colorful hole of moderate difficulty with a delightfully woodsy essence. This is chiefly due to the fact that yellow-throated kingfisher lies on the Myers Creek property line and is mostly isolated from the other holes. It's arguably one of the most peaceful stretches on the entire course and is home to an abundance of curious wildlife, especially the bizarre and fabled three-headed groundhog, which has been sighted an untold number of times by golfers nearing the end of their day's beverage supply. Most have described the beast as a normal-looking groundhog with a head that won't stay in one place. On the subject of fantastic varmints, in 1996, during the Sally Walker Insurance Invitational, acclaimed South African women's champion Stacey McCarthy fell victim to a pesky, bushy-tailed squirrel when it snatched her golf ball from the fairway. With the entire golfing community glued to their television sets, this ridiculous, lighter side of sports moment took an interesting turn when the irksome critter washed his playable plunder in the creek and tried splitting it with a brook trout. On-hand commentators remarked with certainty that the fish appeared to enjoy the Resnick snack, but were divided on the notion that the trout felt the same enthusiasm for his dining partner. Nevertheless, the squirrel and fish were soon joined by an inquisitive garter snake, who, after receiving his own nibble of the tournament leader's ball, decided he wanted the whole thing for himself, but just needed a moment to get it all down. Alas, after a half hour of trying and several commercial breaks, the garter snake gave up and exited the scene. At the time, one of the on-air analysts offered his interpretation of the snake's actions with a silly, cartoonish voice. Television viewers later remarked on the former pro's attempt at humor, saying it wasn't bad, but felt he missed a perfect opportunity to use S-heavy pronunciation. All the same, the squirrel and fish finished their seemingly tasty treat entirely by themselves, and afterward went their separate ways without even exchanging numbers. 
Shortly after, McCarthy called over a tournament official to get a ruling on the matter. The official turned to the defending champion and informed her that Rule 18.1, Article C, states that if a player's ball is moved, stolen, or eaten by an outside agency, not including caddies, the same ball or a different ball must be replaced at the point in which it was manipulated, unless said ball was consumed by two or more agencies, in which case the agencies in question are protected under the United States Fish and Wildlife Service and are entitled to ownership of that ball. Consequently, with respect to the Department of the Interior, Title 50, Part 14L of the Code of Federal Regulations, under the heading Finders Keepers, states that any foreign force willingly introduced into an organism's habitat that is then collectively adopted by the ruling majority of that habitat is thus the property of said community and therefore subject to a vote. After the tournament resumed play, Stacy McCarthy was penalized a stroke for the lost ball and forced to pay a $5,000 fine to the federal government. Hole number 18, Marigold Hummingbird. 18 holes at Myers Creek concludes with a thrilling 370-yard, slightly uphill par 4, fondly dubbed Marigold Hummingbird. With a grand view of the clubhouse and the iconic Pinkerton Bridge, as well as the highly ornate and greatly adored Myers Creek Bird Hotel situated behind the 18th green, there remains no greater stage in golf for a Sunday afternoon tournament finish. Whether it's a final hole grind or a leisurely walk to victory several shots ahead of the rest of the field, while gesturing tastefully with an outstretched tongue and a thumb to the nose and a waggle of the fingers, Marigold Hummingbird is the picture-perfect ending to not only the most revered course ever constructed, but also the sport's most prestigious and sought-after title, the Myers Creek Champions Tournament. Comprised of a hundred years of unrivaled tournament history, which includes the savage 1949 18th hole golf club swordplay between final pairing Irwin Fielding and William M. Fisk after a caddy comment regarding Fielding's toupee when it blew off the former champion's head and was mistaken for his divot, the winner of the annual Champions Tournament is awarded the club's highly coveted seersucker jacket. Originally made from fleece and wool in 1922 by popular Italian designer Tullio Bianchi, this far from fashionable green and white trophy is without question the sport's highest achievement, and as a result has been known to cause the most composed of athletes to blubber for joy and rethink most of their current love affairs. Made of a polyester blend in 1975, with the Myers Creek logo handcrafted to the breast pocket, and a coupon for a two-for-one steak dinner in the inside pocket, the famous blazer is custom-fitted, tailored specifically for the victor. In 1976, after winning the 51st Annual Champions Tournament, golfer Willie Popwell found himself on the unfortunate end of a club faux pas after a disastrous interpretation of yards and centimeters. With television cameras broadcasting and thousands of spectators gathered at the 18th green under the Bird Hotel, the trophy ceremony and much-anticipated jacket presentation reached its rousing yet questionable pinnacle when Chairman Nelson Roloff Jr. presented to the newly crowned champion an 11-inch long green and white striped blazer. Swept up in the pageantry, the unknowing chairman, with a big smile for the cameras, spent a half hour trying to fit Popwell with a doll-sized jacket before sliding over the champion's hand like a puppet. With a fusillade of camera flashes and rapid-firing shutters, Popwell, with his raised blazer that was all but missing a set of googly eyes and yellow yarn for hair, 
struck a triumphant pose as he lifted the Champions Tournament Cup. Photos of the touching moment were featured on the front pages of practically every Monday morning newspaper and National Sports Journal, as well as the cover of several major craft and hobby periodicals, including the Puppet Glossy and Tiny Taylor's Monthly. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.